are broadcasting all over the place. So um, whether that's today or at another time, we just want you to know, those of you online, that your presence and participation is a blessing. Um, and I just want to say again to those of you who are here, it's great to see your faces, to hear your voices. Um, those of you who've never been here before, it's great. Uh, those of you who haven't seen in a long time, so good. Um, thank you. Since the beginning of March, um, we entered into a season in the church calendar called Lent. And the word Lent literally means springtime. It's this time of remembering what God has done for us, and it's traditionally a time of preparing for Easter. So you think about it like the process of growing flowers. There's that part where the seeds are cold and dark and buried in the ground, in many ways alone and being challenged by the elements like snow and rain and cold. But ultimately, the process leads to growth and transformation and new life bursting out of the ground, drawn by the sun, so we can see the beauty of spring. And it's been happening around us. I was just driving through my neighborhood, and one of the center kind of turnarounds is just full of these bright-colored tulips. But this process, if what happens below the ground doesn't happen like it's supposed to, all the hard work that happens below the ground, if it doesn't happen, the new life that the flowers are designed to experience doesn't happen. And so in the same way, Lent is meant to be the church's springtime, a time out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant, empowered people emerges. Now, since this Lenten season began, we have been going through a sermon series entitled Again and Again, A Lenten Refrain. And each week we've been reminded that again and again, suffering and brokenness is part of life. We doubt again. We struggle, we lament again, we mess up again. And every time lives are taken unjustly, every time the powerful choose corruption and violence, every time individuals forget how to love, the story of Jesus on the cross repeats itself again and again. And with it, we exclaim, like, how long, God, will this continue? And during this pandemic, we've journeyed through this season all together. We've been waiting and we've hoped and cried out again and again for this day to come. And today is the day we have been waiting for. It's Resurrection Sunday. And so we say he's risen. He is risen indeed. And it's with the resurrection that we now have this Lenten refrain that echoes again and again in what often feels like this constant chaos of life. In the resurrection of Jesus, God now offers each of us a sacred refrain, saying to us again and again, I choose you, I love you, I'm with you, and I'm for you. Amen? And so today we're closing out this series talking about how again and again the sun rises. And thankfully, we had a beautiful morning to remind us of that. But before we dive in and, and think about what this means for us today, let's Start with a word of prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, it is so good to be together. It's so good to be in community. And we thank you that this community is one where we can come no matter what's going on in the, in the deep struggles and the, the high celebrations and everywhere in between. Um, you meet us here. You uh, unite us together in Christ. And so God, this morning as we, we think about what this means, for the sun to rise every day again and again, what that means to our faith and symbolically what we do with that. God, help us celebrate the goodness of the resurrection. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. So, as I said, we're talking about this idea of how again and again the sun rises. And so I got to show you this clip. I'm a fan of sunrises. This is a time lapse of uh, a sunrise here in Seattle, kind of from West Seattle. Um, and I just love how the skyline is kind of darkened out. And you can see over time the sun coming, illuminating the rays coming through. Not saying this was today, but pretty lovely, right? I love sunrises. And uh, this is a picture um, from this morning. This morning, we had a sunrise service down at Magnuson Park. And we were very fortunate to have the sunrise visible. And you can kind of see in the upper right corner, Mount Rainier was in, in full glory. Um, but like any morning in Seattle, we may have a gorgeous sunrise that stops us and pauses us in kind of awe. Or... It could be quite gray and uneventful, and um, we might just not even care, right? We might not even think about it. And the truth is we rarely consider the mechanics of a sunrise, that the earth is spinning 1,000 miles per hour, traveling an orbit of 584 million miles around a star that's about a million times the size of our planet. When we think about it, it's dizzying, right? <laughs> it's crazy. But because we've come to expect sunrises every day and we're not always impressed by them, especially because in Seattle we don't always get to see them, we often just sleep right through them, it doesn't take away from how awesome and miraculous they are. And Easter is as familiar to Christians as a sunrise. We know the story, at least one variation, and we likely expect to greet the day the same way every year. But if we've really been sitting in what the meaning of Holy Week is and all the power behind Holy Week, hopefully we're able to experience the day in a new and powerful way. And so today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, which is definitely not the most popular resurrection story of all the Gospels, but I think it speaks to what's been going on in us and around our world so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there to Mark chapter 16. We'll start with verse 1. If you don't, you could use the Bible app online, or you could simply follow along on the screen as I read the passage. And we're going to just start with the first four verses of Mark chapter 16, 1 through 4. And it goes like this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, being Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And so here we have the two Marys and Salome going to anoint Jesus. And they faced significant risk going to the tomb that morning, which is why they went super early. They're hoping not to be seen by anyone. And at this point, the disciples had scattered, and the Jesus movement basically seems lost. It's been three days since Jesus died, which is typically the most intense days of grieving and mourning. Now, most pastors and scholars will lift the women up as the most faithful of the disciples because they stayed at Jesus' side as he breathed his last breath, and Mark also refers to these women at the crucifixion as supporters of Jesus, 
which some scholars think included financially supporting um, Jesus's ministry. That said, it's, it's safe to imagine that some of these women may have been part of his ministry and his economic support system. And they're coming to find closure for how they have invested their time and their love and their money into this person. They've come to the tomb in order to properly bury him and move on with their lives. They did not come to see if he had been raised from the dead or to bring Jesus a meal or a fresh set of clothes. And we know this because had they truly believed Jesus would be resurrected, they would not have come bearing the necessary spices and oil to anoint his body as it had been decomposing. Had they truly believed Jesus would be resurrected, they wouldn't be concerned about moving away the stone which is the only line of dialogue of the passage in this passage that these women use. Their main concern is whether they are strong enough to move this huge rock in order to perform this burial. They need contact with Jesus's body in order to finalize things. And if they can't move the stone, which often weighed a thousand plus pounds, depending on the size, then what's the point of making the journey to the tomb in the first place? So their one question is a practical one. Which, whenever I hear this question, I think of the people in my life who take care of the practical details as part of how they grieve. Maybe that's you, maybe you know some people. They're the people that make the meals, that they help clean the house, they take care of the mundane in order for the world to kind of keep turning in the midst of the chaos and the loss. These three are the practical mourners that come in the early morning to find closure and relief. But this is not what they receive at the tomb. And we can see this as the text continues with verse 4. It says this, When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is, this, is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out, fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You could see why this isn't the most popular gospel of <laughs> resurrection story. And so what we see is these three women did not receive closure or quiet or space for tears or relief. When they show up, the stone has already been rolled away. They enter the tomb, and to the right, they see this angel in white. And this clearly isn't Jesus, and it's not someone they know. And the angel tells them not to be afraid like most do in the Gospels. But of course, they're understandably alarmed and speechless. The women remain silent as the angel tells them what they already know. Jesus died from crucifixion and was buried here. But the angel also tells them something they don't know. Jesus is alive and has already left and is on his way to Galilee. The angel then commissions them to go tell the disciples the good news so they can meet Jesus there. 
And so that's what the women do. They run full of joy. They're so happy. They go to tell the disciples the good news of the resurrection. That's what happens. Wait, that's not what happens, right? Instead, the gospel of Mark, as it's originally written, ends by saying this. So they, the women, went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end, right? Not quite the ending we expect for Easter, right? Especially when we're talking about good news. Now, most pastors preach that last line looking at these words, terror, amazement, and afraid in a negative way which isn't hard to understand because we kind of want to think, shouldn't they be excited and joyful and so motivated? But the thing is, there's more than one way to translate these three words. For example, the word afraid in the Greek is the word phabeo. And if you study this word in the Greek, you'll find that it's used primarily when talking about awe and reverence, which means the word fear isn't wrong, but as you can imagine, experiencing awe and reverence has a very different feel, for sure, than being afraid. The word terror in the Greek is the word traumas, and it literally means to tremble. So of course you might tremble as a result of fear, but you can tremble for lots of different reasons. For example, maybe you're cold, or you're angry, you're stressed, or excited, or when you're waiting for something with great anticipation. Could these women be trembling for a totally different reason than that of being afraid? The third word, the word amazement or bewildered, depending how your Bible translated, is a very toned down kind of translation of an actual Greek word. The actual word in the Greek is the word ecstasis, which is where we get the word ecstasy, which you can see why they maybe chose a different word, because ecstasy has a very different meaning in our minds. And I don't have time to go into all the details of this incredible word, but what we need to know is that the word is describing a totally immersive, full-body experience. And every time God gifts an ecstatic experience to someone in the scriptures, it is always for the sake of transformation. Always. And so then the question becomes, which is it? Are these women experiencing terror, amazement, and fear? Or are they utterly speechless, trembling in ecstasy and in awe? Are they just terrified? Or are they being transformed? Maybe it's not one or the other. Maybe it's both, right? Maybe it's all of this. Think about it. How would you respond if you were in this situation? I'm dating myself as I say this, but I remember back when I was a kid having this love-hate relationship with Choose Your Own Adventure books. Anybody remember these? Um, they often said they had 20-plus possible endings. So you'd start on page one, and by page 10, you'd be given a choice, right? If you choose to continue across the bridge, go to page 12. If you choose to turn around and head back, turn to page 27. And depending on your choice, the book could be quite short, or it could be quite lovely and exciting and long. And sometimes it would be really fast. Like you'd get to your first choice, you'd pick it, and they would say something like, you start to cross the bridge and halfway across, you slip and fall and die and land on the rocks. And the end, and you've read like three pages and you're like, wait, 
What is, <laughs> there's a hundred plus pages, how can the book be over? And in many ways, when we read the ending of this gospel of Mark, we feel the same way. How could this possibly be the ending of the gospel? But what's interesting is if we go back to the opening of the gospel, to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we see Mark gives us a clue. It opens with these words, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It does not say the gospel of Jesus Christ like the other ones. It says it's the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, this book is not the end of the story of Jesus. This story is to be continued in the church and in the lives of the disciples and people like you and me. And Mark wants us to understand that the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead cannot be neatly wrapped up in a bow and it made out to be this perfectly wonderful thing. It's not just a historical fact that we look at on one day of the year and just kind of dust it off and go, yeah, I remember this. The resurrection's a mystery and we must decide what to do with it. And that said, I believe Mark leaves the book open-ended intentionally to make us ask ourselves whether we will be silent about what we've learned and experienced or not. Will we allow the story to stop us in fear or move us towards transformation? And if we're being honest, I think the answer for us depends on the day if not moment by moment. There are moments when we are stopped in fear, we just flat out ignore it, and there's other times we're being transformed and it's doing amazing things. And when we think back to the events that led to Christ's death on the cross, we remember that all his closest friends failed him. One of them betrayed him, the others abandoned him. The only one who tried to follow him, Peter, denied knowing Jesus three times. The last time we see him, he went away weeping, in other words, all of the disciples failed. We like to say at least the women remained faithful, right? They watched him carry the cross to Calvary. They saw him suffer and die on the cross and saw where he was buried. But again, they too lost hope as seen here by them going to finalize his funeral. But now, having been surprised by a missing body, an empty tomb, an angel appearance and confusing words about going to Galilee and seeing Jesus there as he promised, they could not take it all in. They went to the tomb to resolve the situation by anointing his body instead. They experienced something they've never experienced before. And that's a feeling we can identify with these days. Going through something we've never gone through before. That's about what the last two years has been. We've been experiencing things we never imagined we'd have to go through. The coronavirus has killed millions of people literally worldwide. We've dealt with lockdowns, physical distancing, masks, schools, operating in hybrid or virtual mode, dealing with illness or fear of death because of an illness. We've had to learn how to be the church in these unfamiliar ways. We've had to look out to our neighbor and think about other safety before our own preferences. Many of us, like me, have experienced loss of a loved one. And like these ladies, we haven't been able to have a proper burial like we're used to. 
Mass shootings are up 50%, not including what just happened in Brooklyn this last week. We've seen extreme political division, horrible racial injustices, not to mention the threat of a new world war. All of this brings up ongoing fear and anger and sadness and frustration, all the while trying to figure out a new normal while longing for things to just go back to the way things used to be. And then we're constantly facing this looming unknown of what tomorrow will bring. We've never gone through something like this before. And so we can start to get a small sense of what the women at the tomb were feeling. They left shaking with grief and bewilderment and awe and reverence. They were silenced and trembling in a full-body ecstatic experience. And at least initially, they told no one. And understandably, they were overwhelmed with their call to be messengers of this incredible and unbelievable news. And so they kept it to themselves, at least for a little while. So again, it's very clear the disciples of Jesus fall short. But the thing is, when you realize this, you go, wait, that's real life right? That's reality. The life of a disciple following Jesus is never an easy, simple journey. It's a way marked again and again with failure and doubt. And it may seem that Mark's ending leaves us with this kind of pessimistic note as the women fail to carry out their mission. But we all know that that's clearly not the end of the story. And this story isn't even about the disciples' failure and foolishness, and it's not about our faults and weaknesses as well. The gospel is about the power of God that overcomes sin and death and overcomes human uh, dysfunction and disaster. And we know that the good news of Jesus' resurrection for the dead was proclaimed and is being proclaimed still in this very community and around the world, just as Jesus promised. That means that God's will and Jesus' promise have been and are still being fulfilled despite human hesitation, despite resistance, fear, and disobedience. And that, my friends, is some really good news. That's unconditional love. It's unconditional grace. You see, we want a story to end with a note of joy and triumph, and depending on how we translate this text, it does. But it could not, and it could be both. But I think Mark has another thought. He writes, for those who will never experience Jesus' physical presence. His original audience included people living as a tiny minority in their society, experiencing misunderstanding, harassment, persecution, and the fear of death for their faith in Jesus. And he also writes, for those who may feel like the disciples, who are struggling, who are mourning, who are feeling lost. They don't know how to live faithfully as Jesus called and taught them just like us. And yet there's one more important piece in the angel's words to the women that I want to make sure that we hear today. The angel says this to the women in verse 7, 
But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he, Jesus, is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see Jesus as he promised. Peter and all the disciples had failed. But those dark moments weren't the end of their story as well, right? Like the sun rising at the dawn of every day, Peter and the disciples have a new opportunity because again and again, they are forgiven and they are restored and called by Jesus back to their journey of faith. Even if we look at ourselves and feel like we're too far away from God, that we failed one too many times, that our last struggle was too big, that our life is over and that it seems as dark and hopeless as a moonless night, God wants us to know again and again, a new day will dawn for us and life can begin again like that sunrise in the garden of Jerusalem and just like the sunrise this morning at Magnuson Park. God's mercies are new every morning because of the resurrection. And Easter reminds us that Jesus conquered death and is alive and that he's already going ahead of you, ready to meet you on the way, ready to restore, heal, forgive, empower, and renew us. That's what Easter does. It reminds us again and again that God is with us and for us. And that's true whether we are experiencing loss, fear, doubt, grief, or having a full body experiencing trembling in awe and wonder, or anything in between, or if we're experiencing all of that and more all at once, it doesn't matter. God is with us and for us. And that's the message I think we need to hear today. And I hope you receive that as good news. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And as a result, Jesus is going ahead of us. This means God is already moving in our world beyond the pandemic, beyond our fears and doubts, our struggles and our silence. The Holy Spirit is on the move, opening up new opportunities for the church and for the people in it who choose to not look back to the way things were, but instead will look forward into the new life that is emerging by following Jesus beyond the resurrection. And so again and again, the sun rises on a new day, often without embrace or acknowledgement. And the same is true for the resurrection. Whether or not we discern what's happening, God is literally and figuratively turning the world around. God is resurrecting each of us at every moment of every day with every breath that we take. And just like the sunrise every day, the choice is ours to pay attention or not. No matter how we respond, though, at any moment, the resurrecting work of Christ continues in us and in our world, making all things new. And to me, that is some incredibly good news. And so with that, may we be the repentant, empowered people who have emerged out of this Lenten season because of the realities of the resurrected Jesus. May we be captivated by the power of the Holy Spirit, much like a beautiful sunrise, and may we embrace the transformation that comes with following God's way, knowing that God is with us and for us, guiding us each and every step of the way.
Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. As they do, they're going to just take a few moments to play kind of instrumentally to um, allow us space to ponder what we've talked about today. And I want to invite you as you do um, to allow yourself to be honest with where you're at because it's, it's truly okay if you're in a really difficult place or if you're in a really great place or anywhere in between, I hope you receive the good news of the resurrected Christ is with you and for you. So that said, um, I would also like to invite our prayer team to come up. They'll be right up here. But during this time, feel free to use this space to pray, uh, to ponder what we've talked about, to confess, to own, to give thanks, to receive, to be filled, to dream, whatever you feel called to in this time. Um, and uh, if you're online as well, the prayer team, all you have to do is click the request prayer button to the left of the chat line. Um, someone will connect with you in the order of its being received. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. We'll have some music to kind of ponder, and then we'll sing one last song of response. Father, Son, Spirit, we thank you that we can, uh, even in a morning like most of our mornings where it's dark and gray and we don't even think about the sun rising. We thank you that you are still at work in our lives, even when we go days, maybe even months, maybe even the last two years, not even resurrect, understanding the resurrection. You still are resurrecting us with every breath we breathe. You are transforming us. God, help us to be the men and women who don't just think about that, but know it and are experiencing it. We're tapping into the work that you're doing in and around and through us. God, maybe we be those people who not just stop to attend to the beautiful sunrise, but that we are, we are caught by the power of the resurrection in our moments, in our opportunities. And thank you for your grace that as we own the realities that that's not gonna happen all the time, that you're still working as sure as the sun rises again and again. We worship you and we give you praise and we celebrate you risen Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.